There is no relationship more dear to your hearts than your kids. There is no relationship that you are more fearful of losing than one of your kids. There is no relationship that you will fork out more money for... I don't need to finish the sentence. I'm done. You, you, you get it. And, and so we, we all understand that. Now, when, when we bring that kid home from the hospital, we care. And it doesn't really matter how you got the child because maybe you adopted a child. Maybe, you know, you gave birth to the child. Maybe you're a grandparent and you're now raising a grand, you know, grandson or granddaughter. Maybe you're an uncle and you're raising a niece. or ne- It doesn't matter how you got the kid. Everybody in the room is on equal ground when it comes to our hearts for our kids. We all get that. Everybody in the room, our hearts are this big when it comes to our children. Doesn't matter if they were ours when we brought them home, we adopted it, doesn't matter. We're all together. But here's where we're not together. Here's where this is all together, but here's where we're not together. Skill. See, it's not, it's not a hard issue. Coaching and parenting are never a hard issue. But they are always a skill issue. We're all level when it comes to heart, but we're not all on the same plane when it comes to, to skill. And so we're going to talk about skill today. How do we do this? A couple of weeks ago in the crash course in chemistry, Tom Goodall did a phenomenal job with parenting. And Tom's talking about parenting more toward children that are a little bit younger and, and smaller. I, I want to go from where he did, like, you know, kids are in a car seat. I want to talk about kids that, are, that buy their own cars, okay? So I'm not talking today about, about parenting like that, but I'm talking about now coaching in a, in a much bigger, bigger capacity. So when we talk about coaching, what does that look like and why? Well, here's what most of us do. For some reason in our culture, we've gotten the idea that when a child turns 16 or a child turns 18 or a child turns 21, that we're no longer coaching, that we're no longer parenting. And so where in the world did that, that idea come from? Where did the idea come from that when you're 16, when you're 18, when you're 21, that we're done? I'll tell you where it came from. 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds, and 21-year-olds. That's exactly where it came from. Now, when are you going to make the greatest mistakes in your life? When you're three? Or when you're 16? When you're 18? When you're 21? When you're 25? When you're 33? I mean, at three, what can go wrong? Hey, I don't like my applesauce, so I knock it off. I mean, what, what can happen at three? But by the time you turn to be 16 and 18 and 21 and 27 and 37, there's a whole lot that can go wrong. I mean, in your own life, when and where did you make the greatest mistakes of your life? When you were three or when you were 18? When you just think about the difference. You know, when you're a small child, you're making choices and you're building your future, Absolutely. But, but what happens, you know, when you turn 16 and 18 and 21, that's when you decide, I'm going to party. That's when you decide, I'm going to drink. I'm going to quit school. I'm going to quit the career. I don't have the self-discipline to do this. I'm going to start smoking pot. I'm, I'm doing crack. No, I, I don't do crack, but I'm just, it's, a, it's an illustration, okay? Don't go tomorrow. My preacher does crack. It's a great church. It's awesome. Um, 
But it's at those stages of life where you make the greatest mistakes. And so how in the world then do we just, just, well, what do we do? Well, we get fearful. We all get fearful. Every one of us in this room have older, you know, we get fearful. And so we do one of two things. Number one, we do what I call the advance. Because we've made those mistakes and because we've gone off the ditch and because we've, you know, hit the wall 100 miles an hour, we're like so afraid so we advance. I call it the helicopter. And you just hover over your kids, hover over them, and you just helicopter, you just choke them. And that doesn't work either because the kids are going to give me some freedom, give, give me some space. That's a few parents. That's a few grandparents. That's a few uncles and aunts. That's not a whole lot. Quite frankly, it's the other extreme that we see in the Bible. The other extreme is what we call neglect. Well, I can't say anything because I smoke pot too. Well, I can't, I didn't. I'm just, I'm, these are illustrations, okay? <laughs> Y'all are looking at me like, really? Tell us more, Pastor. This is great. I'm going to pray for you again. You know, I, I can't do this because, you know, I, I stole the car and I wrecked the car and I quit school and I, I got pregnant. I, you know, you, you, I, what, what can I say? Well, you've made the mistakes. You know what to say. You know where this car is headed. You know where this is going. And so I I don't see a whole lot of advancing where we just hover and choke it down their throat, although that does happen. What what I tend to see more in my life is the neglect. And you know what? When you look through the Bible, you don't get a whole lot of help with this either. You're going, oh, great. Why did I come to church? My preacher smokes pot and the Bible can't help me. So so (laughs) when you look through this, And you begin to say, you begin to ask yourself the questions about parenting. How did parenting go for Adam and Eve? That go good for Adam and Eve? The whole Cain and Abel thing? How'd that go? How'd it go for Noah? Noah, real, you know, how'd that go with his sons? No, one of the sons exposed his dad and embarrassed his dad to no end. How did it go for Jacob? He's got the 10 boys, they're all conspired together, and we're going to take Joseph down, we're going to rip up his coat of many colors, put some blood on it, and tell Dad, I don't know what happened, is this our brother's coat? And they held that secret for years and years and years. How, how did parenting go for David, King David? You look at David's family lineage, David like checked out. I don't know what happened to David. David, like great king, terrible father. And all of a sudden, you got, you got Solomon checking out. Samuel's one of the greatest people in the Bible. In fact, the Bible has nothing negative to say about Samuel. It's the only character that I'm aware of that is written that extensively that there's not one negative thing written about him except his sons. And the people were so afraid that his boys were going to go into power, that they're saying, we don't want this. We need a king. Give us a king because your boys are corrupt. And you look at parenting through the entire Bible, it's like, oh my gosh, this is not good. And so what do we do? Well, I, I, I think this whole parenting thing is a really short season. I mean, you know, sit down, get in the car seat, because if you don't, you know, we're going to get arrested. The popo is going to get us, you know. So th- this is easy. You got to wear a seatbelt. This is easy. 
But, but over here, this is not for a short period of time. This is for a long period of time. And this is challenging. So what does coaching look like? I think coaching has four components to it. And I, I, you may want to write this down, and you may want to push delete. But I think, I think coaching has four pieces to it. Number one, I think coaching is about options. I think you're sharing options. Because at 16, at 18, at 21, at 25, at 30, or whatever, even at my age, I go to my men, the guys I have closest to me, and I tell them a situation that, I, that, I, that I'm in, and I come up with two options. And they come up with six. You see, that's what we do as a coach. We help people with options. Well, I think maybe I'm going to go, you know, school part-time, and I may, I may work part-time. Oh, good, good. Is that what you're No, I really don't know what to do. Well, there's, there's four other things you could do. You could, you know, wait till December. You could work full. I mean, you, you, you give options. So a great coach is always helping with options. Number two, I think coaching involves values. We're always sharing what our values are. Well, this is who our family is. And you, you, can, you can do whatever you want to, but this, this is who we are. We, we go to church. We, we tithe. We, we serve. We pray. We, we help people. At Christmas time, we do this. I mean, you're sharing your values. And you always keep your values in front of your family because your values, they drive your vision. And so a great coach shares options. A great coach helps with values. And number three, I think a great coach helps with the responsibility. Whose responsibility is it? It's yours. It isn't mine. It's your life. This isn't my life. So I think a great coach, we don't take those burdens on us, but we tell people, hey, these are your options, but this is where this is going to head. You can do that. You can absolutely do that, but you're going to be more miserable than you could ever dream or imagine. Or, or guess what? It's your life. You see, as a coach, we're, it's not our problem. It's not even our, our, our burden. We're, it's your life. And as a coach, we put the responsibility back on the individual. Number four, man, we'll pray for you. Hey, I don't, I don't really know what to do here. You know what? I don't know what you should do either. Why don't we ask God? I think coaching involves prayer. I think coaching involves options. I think coaching involves responsibility, values, and, and a lot of prayer. So there's this really weird story in 1 Samuel about a guy named Eli. And I want you to try to figure out as we read this story whether Eli was a great parent or a pitiful parent. Okay? It's kind of interesting to look through this. And Eli was the priest, and Eli was the judge of Israel at this time. So let's start with 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, verse 12. It says, Eli's sons were scoundrels. So we're not off to a good start, are we? They had no regard for the Lord, or at strike two. Now, it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan, kettle, cauldron, or pot. I don't know why they use four words for the same thing. Whenever the fork, whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Now, let me explain this. You see, what happened in that there's five different types of offerings. One's a fellowship offering. And the fellowship offering, the priest takes this 
fork and he sticks it into this pot and whatever the priest brings up, it's kind of like providentially whatever he sticks in there and brings back up, that's what his family gets. And so he takes that meat home with him, feeds his family, feeds his wife, feeds his kids. And so it's kind of weird for us. It'd be like, like us not paying one of our pastors this week. And we tell one of the pastors, look, just, you know, reach into the bag of offering bag and whatever you bring up, you know, it, it, it's yours. I mean, that's weird for us, right? Some churches probably do that. But anyway, we would not do that. That's kind of how this worked back then, but, but it worked well. The problem in this story is that there was a procedure that you had to wait till the fat was burned off because the fat belonged to the Lord. Now, why the fat? Because the Lord loved the aroma. That was like the prayers and the incense. That was the aroma up to God. And these guys were saying, we want it now. We don't care about God. We don't care about God's part. We want our part, all right? So while the, so this is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the person said to him, well, you know, this is how we do it. You got to let the fat be burned first, and then, you, then you get to take whatever you want. The servant would answer, no, hand it over now. And if you don't, I'll take it by force. And the sin of Eli's sons and Eli's servants, the young men, was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, Eli who was very old, he heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. So there's a bunch of ladies who help, you know, with the tabernacle service. And Eli's sons were exploiting the women. That would never happen today, right? Women are never exploited today. That was a joke. All right. Look at the next verse. So he said to them, He's he's talking to his sons. Why do you do such things? And I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may uh, mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. Go to the next section. Now, a man of God came to Eli... So now we're kind of scratching our head with the story going, is he a good dad? Did the boys just not do well or, or what, what was up? Well, now we're going to get dialed into the story. So here's a man of God that's going to come now to Eli and kind of tell Eli, Eli, you've been taking bribes under the table. Eli, you've really not been doing what was right. So, so even in your own home life, you haven't got your act together. No wonder your son's act. So a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' families when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites, why do you scorn my sacrifice and offerings that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? 
And as the story unfolds, you see that Eli, it wasn't that he made mistakes, is that he continued to make mistakes. It wasn't that he took a shortcut. It was he continued to take shortcuts. It wasn't that he was wrong. It was that he continued to do wrong and do wrong and do wrong. And this is where we get stuck in being a coach. Well, how can I say anything? Well, look at the mistakes I've made. Well, I, I, I don't know that I did any better when I was 16. I, I don't know that I had my act together at 26. And so then we, we neglect. Instead of repenting. Instead of getting our life together. Instead of making a conscious decision that I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to rise up and be the woman that God's called me to be. I'm going to rise up and I'm going to be the uncle, the grandfather, the dad. I'm going to be the man that God's called me to be. It does happen. It happens. And when it does, it's powerful on the family. I want you to see how this happened just recently in the life of a man in our church who actually is sitting in the room during this service right now. He rose up, didn't do what was right, didn't have it together, didn't, but he set an example for his sons and for his wife. Watch this. Today is just a very emotional and very meaningful day for me. I became saved at a very young age, and I was baptized in these very waters probably around 42 years ago. And ever since that time, I've never doubted my salvation. I've always known that Christ lived in my heart. But in the same token, I've never ever truly given my life to the Lord and let Him live through me. I feel that through my life, I've always tried to do everything. I've tried to provide. I've tried to be a good husband. I've tried to be a good father. But in the same token, that I know that I failed because I know that God has a much bigger plan. And I know that... Uh, if I would have put him first in my life, that I would have been a much better husband and I would have been a much better father. And I ask for forgiveness for my wife and for my two boys, basically because I know they deserve so much better and God holds me accountable to be that kind of man and that kind of father. And my prayer today was just basically the fact that when I go under these waters that the flesh that I have dies and that when I come back up every crevice every crack that the Holy Spirit needs to fill would be filled and that he would be foremost in my life going forward. It just meant so much for me to be able to have two sons that I could ask today to baptize me. And I asked him to hold me under a little bit longer for three I surrenders because I truly wanted to surrender and just give it all to God today. Pretty cool. So, so this dad made a decision. This dad stuck a flag in the ground. This dad drew a line in the sand. This dad said, hey, this wasn't good. This wasn't healthy. This wasn't right. Didn't have my act together. But now, as for me in my house, and his two sons baptized him. How cool is that? Very, very cool. So what do we say? If this coaching is so critical, how do we coach? And, and what do we say? Well, we do have a great example with the Apostle Paul and with Timothy. Now, it was father-son, not by blood, but spiritually. And Paul was the father to a young protege named Timothy. And I just want us to take, there's 10 of these in the bulletin. If we get to them, great. If not, we'll, we'll, we'll do it later some other time. But I want you to see what you might say 
to someone in coaching. And he gives us some great coaching on how to coach. So here's the first one, and that is this. You, you got somebody in your family or in your workforce, and they're not going the right direction, and they don't feel like God's going to use them. You say, hey, God's willing to accept and use everybody. Now, that's a powerful statement, especially when you don't feel like you're, you're worthy of, of God to use you. And here's what Paul says to, to Timothy. I think Christ Jesus, our Lord, has given me strength. That he considered me trustworthy, appointed me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, you talk about messing up. I don't think you can mess up much greater than that, can you? I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul's saying, I did this. I messed up. Timothy, God is willing to use you. God is willing to accept you. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let's look at number two. Jesus is our hero. I think we keep this in front of us. I think we keep this value to our family. Why, why is Jesus our hero? Just recently, I was in a Starbucks, which I know shocks everybody in the room, but I, I was in a Starbucks, and I'm getting to know this young man. He's probably 20-ish, and he's behind the counter working, the, you know, and he's over there now talking to me. And he said, he said, I've been talking to him about Jesus and church for a couple of years. He said, hey, you know what? I, I think I'm going to become a Zen Buddhist. <laughs> I said, really? I said, wow. I said, so, so you're going to follow a dead guy. <laughs> he said, what? I said, well, Buddha's dead. I said, why wouldn't you follow somebody that's alive like Jesus? And I just walked right out of the room and he was just shaking his head, you know, scratching his head. I love that. I love that. You know, Jesus is our hero. I mean, this is real easy, guys. If a guy can predict his own death and a guy can walk out of the grave, that's my hero. That's the guy I'm going, I'm going with, right? And, and so we keep this in front of our family. We keep this in front of our values. Number three, we remember what we've talked about. We, we, we remember this. You, you talk about this in your family. You talk about this. This is who we are. This is what we do. This, these are our values. Number four. You hold on to these truths. You guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. You guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We hold on to this truth. We don't have it all figured out. We don't understand everything, but we do have this figured out, and we're holding on to it. The next one. We share these truths with others. All these, and these things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people. I was in uh, our Pinch a Penny store just a couple weeks ago, and I go into Pinch a Penny, and again, it's about a 25-year-old young male, and he said to me, how's the flock? <laughs> I said, the flock is good, bro. And I'm thinking, that's a funny question from a 25-year-old. But I didn't say anything else and let it go, got my things of chlorine, you know, and went back. And a couple hours later, I'm going to our Publix, and I'm in there getting an apple in the afternoon, and he's at the deli getting some chicken. And so I go up to him, and I said, you know, you ask a funny question, how's the flock? I said, you must be a young man of faith. He said, no, I'm not. I just heard you were a preacher. 
And I said, well, do you? He said, no, I don't go to church. Went to so-and-so church about three or four times in my life, but I, I don't go. So he's trying to get chicken. And I said to him, you know what? I said, it's real easy. Either Jesus did or he did not rise from the dead. That's really as easy as it is. If he did not, I'm wasting my time. If he did, it changes everything. Enjoy your chicken. (laughs) He chased me clear to the chip aisle and said, I've never heard it put that way. I can understand that. See how easy this really is? If he didn't rise from the dead, let's all go to the beach. Right? If he did rise from the dead, it changes everything. Look at the next one. Remember who he is. That's what I'm trying to say. He was raised from the dead, 2 Timothy 2.8. Paul didn't just think this. Paul saw him. Paul experienced him. Jesus was alive. The next one. Keep the main thing the main thing. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value. It only ruins those who listen. Don't get into all these theological arguments about six days of creation. Is it pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, pan-tribulation? Don't get into all that. Keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus rose from the dead. And he's, our, he's my hero and he's my savior. Look at the next one. The scriptures are your life. We've talked about this, two of our three Young adults are in the room right now. We talk about this with all three of them all the time. I, I, every young adult, every person that I come in contact with, the scriptures are your life. The scriptures are your life. Now, whether you read the Bible or not, it's up to you, but the scriptures are your life. The scriptures will guide you. The scriptures will help you. The scriptures will keep you from sin. The scriptures will set you free, but, but it's up to you. But the scriptures are your life. Look at the next one. Face reality about temptations. Why would we not talk about temptations to 16-year-olds, to 18-year-olds? I mean, we're going to talk about temptations to three-year-olds? Honey, drink your juice. I know you're tempted to have, you know, water. We're not going to do that with three-year-olds. When do we face temptations? Well, we're not old enough to understand these, aren't we? So why wouldn't we talk about it? And this is what he says. He says, flee the evil desires of youth. This is the father telling the, the spiritual son and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. I mean, this is really simple. I'm either pursuing temptations or I'm pursuing Christ. It's, it's real easy. Look at the last one. The last one is you, you can have assurance. You can have assurance. The Lord stood at my side and he gave me strength. So look at the list of 10. The first thing I want you to do is to personalize this today. Of those 10 which one do you need to like camp out on all week long? Have you forgotten that maybe God's willing to accept you and use you? I mean, is that, is that where you are this morning? Are you discouraged and defeated this morning? Paul was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of the church and God used him. What about the scriptures are your life? I mean, do you need to hear that? Do you need to camp on that? What about facing reality about temptations? Are there some real strong temptations in your life and you're just not facing reality. I mean, you're, you're, you're just really trying to be the ostrich sticking your head in the sand pretending like those temptations aren't real. Do you, do you need to get real with yourself? But this sermon's not for you. This sermon is for all the people in your life. 
and you've got sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters and nieces and nephews. You've got coworkers. And what the tendency is, is we kind of advance, 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 or we neglect, we neglect, we neglect. But the thread is we have to figure out how to communicate these truths in a way that they can hear it. Hey, I just want you to know I've been there, I've done that. Um, if you want to talk, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Hey, I, I, I just want you to know that I know you may not feel good about your life right now. And I, you know, when I was 20 years ago, I didn't feel good about my life. So I, I can actually, I can help you with this. So females, invite the female for a cup of coffee. Males, invite the males to, to a cup of coffee. Just, just, can we have a discussion about this? Now, I'm, I'm not going to preach at you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just going to maybe lay out some other options. You've got some more options than, than maybe you can even see at this time. The thread is the communication. Now, why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we do that? Because, you see, we're afraid because nobody wants to be told what to do. And we know that if we tell somebody something to do, we know that possibly we could be rebuffed from that. But I want to tell you the pain of them going off the bridge is far more painful than you getting a little bit of mild criticism. Yeah? Right? Right? We'd far rather them not crash and burn than them maybe get a little bit upset with what we're trying to say at this moment. But you see, you've got to have an invested relationship there. Rules without a relationship leads to rebellion. So it's got to be a relationship. And so, hey, I'm, a, I'm in your camp. Hey, bro, I don't know how you feel, but what, what can I do to help? Hey, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm there for you. And we learn to coach. I'm telling you, this parenting thing for small kids, whew, it's gone. It's gone in a heartbeat. Um, it's, it's, where did that go? My kids are now 25, 23, and 18. Where did that go? But I'm going to be a coach the rest of my life. And I'm going to learn how to coach better and better and better and better. And see, in this room, think of all our mistakes. Man, we got enough mistakes in this room to sink Pinellas County. We do. But think of all the collective wisdom in this room. The wisdom in this room. What we know what to do. We know what not to do. We know what to say because we didn't do it right the first time. How do we get so smart? Because we screwed up so many times. And so this is where then God wants to say, all right, I'm going to take that pain and I'm going to take that mess. I'm going to take that that lemon. I'm going to make some lemonade out of it. And I'm going to use it to help somebody. And I guarantee you, God will honor your, your work. I guarantee you, God will honor what you've, what you've done and how you've done it. Now, the place to always begin is giving your life to Christ. That is always the first place. Because you can't coach as well without God's Spirit inside of you. And when you become a Christian, God's Spirit now comes inside of you. And God's Spirit's going ding, 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 ding. Tell them to go faster. Tell them to go slower. Tell them to back up. God's Spirit's always at work inside of you. So step one is to give your life to Christ. It's always give your life to Christ. Step two is to surrender every day. You wake up tomorrow morning before you get out of bed. You're just there. All right. 
man, before I go to work, before I do, I go take off to college, before I, I, I surrender. I'm your, I'm your woman. I'm your man. I'm yours today, God. You, the, you surrender. But maybe for their prayer partners in just a minute, maybe some of their prayers today are, I got some people in my family. I, I need, somebody needs to coach. And I, I don't know how to do it, but would you pray for me? Would you pray for me to help coach? Somebody that I work with that needs, needs some coaching, and I'm not really sure how to go about this. Would, would you pray for me to have a, a window, a door, so I can get, get in and get through? And so I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come down front right now, and I'm going to ask us to stand up, and I'm going I'm to close our service. But if you today are not a Christian, man, I, I encourage you. I, I wouldn't go with anybody who's dead. I'd go with the one who's alive. And then I would use your pain to make progress for the kingdom, for the kingdom of God. We surrender to you today, Lord Jesus, and we honor you. In your name we pray. Amen.